0: new musician to play on stage today. Thank you, Brady, for filling in and for playing so well. Very much appreciate that. Good job, man. It's almost like there's music in your genes or something. <laughs> don't know. Glad to be here this morning. Um, I have to admit, uh, being in a building with and studying God's word with no AC reminds me of teaching in Nepal a little bit. Um, and so it's not quite as hot in here as it is over there when we teach, but um, it is uh, still God's Word and uh, just re- makes me remember those guys sitting there all afternoon, uh, just soaking up God's Word, taking notes, and passionate to learn about who God is and about His Word. And so um, I'm excited to, to jump into our text this morning. You can open up to Exodus 20, Exodus 20 through. Chapter 23 is where we'll be today. If you've never read C.S. Lewis's book, really any of his books are worth reading, but if you've never read his book, Mere Christianity, I highly recommend it to you. It is uh, a, a very good read, very readable. He's an excellent writer, and the content is just amazing. But he begins the book by talking about every person's innate sense of right and wrong we all have it no matter what we say we believe about the universe about the creation of the universe about whether there's a god or not we all have this sense of right and wrong and here's how he begins and how he describes this as being so obvious in our lives everyone has heard people quarreling sometimes it sounds funny And sometimes it sounds merely unpleasant, but however it sounds, I believe we can learn something very important from listening to the kind of things they say. They say things like this. How'd you like it if anyone did the same to you? That's my seat. I was there first. Leave him alone. He isn't doing you any harm. Why should you shove in first? Give me a bit of your orange. I gave you a bit of mine. Come on, you promised. People say things like that every day. Educated people as well as uneducated, and children as well as grown-ups. Now, what interests me about all these remarks is that the man who makes them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior does not happen to please him. He is appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which he expects the other man to know about. And in the book, Lewis goes on to build the case that our innate sense of morality comes from somewhere. I mean, he's not so much focused on the specifics yet in mere Christianity at the beginning, the first whole section of the book, but what he's doing is building the case that even the fact that you and I think in terms of right and wrong, no matter what we say is right and wrong, even the fact that we think this is right, this is wrong, this is moral, this is immoral, the fact that every human being intuitively knows there's right from wrong, that means that there is some authority that has given us that sense. It didn't happen by accident. And if your view of the world is a purely materialist view, If you think, in other words, that nothing exists outside of the physical universe, then the only thing you can ever know is what happens. You can never know what should happen. You can only describe things that happen. You can't ever tell someone this is what should happen. This is how you should act. But the problem is, even if you say you're a materialist, no one lives that way. No one lives as if the physical universe only exists and we can only describe what happens. We all live as if we can tell each other what should happen and how we should live. In a materialist worldview, you can never actually tell someone it's wrong to steal, even if they steal your things. You can't make that argument. The only thing you can tell them is that Throughout human history, humans have generally agreed that stealing is bad because it keeps us from trusting one another and we need to trust each other so that we can work together to survive. That's basically all you can tell someone. You can't make the case that stealing is wrong in every instance and is immoral. You can't say it's a violation of a law written into reality and that you or I should not steal. The truth is we all. Every person believes that we should act this way, and we shouldn't act that way. And the reason that that is true, the reason that we all believe that, is because, as Christians, we know this to be true, that God has written His law into the structure of the universe. He's written His law onto our hearts, and He has revealed that law to us in His Word. And the law that He gives us in His Word is a reflection of His character. Here's the point of all of this. The Bible is a profoundly moral document because the God who gave us the Bible is a profoundly loving person. He loves and He wants what is good, and His love expresses itself through redemption as well as through giving the moral commandments and guidelines to His people in Scripture. And that's exactly what we find in the covenant that He makes with Israel. He redeems them, and then he gives them a covenant, and that covenant is to guide them and to show them how to live so that they can reflect his character. And that covenant is called the book of the covenant, and it's what we've been studying in Exodus 19 through 24, this whole section of the book of Exodus. Kind of the centerpiece of this book is the official covenant that God gives to his people. So let me remind you of where we are, how we got here, and what God is doing. Exodus tells the story of God's redemption of Israel from Egypt by His miraculous rescue of them. He has brought them out of Egypt through the Red Sea into the wilderness and to Mount Sinai in order to make this covenant with them. Now this agreement, this covenant that establishes this official relationship between God and the nation of Israel is made so that they would be his special people and so that they could represent him to all the other nations. And as they fulfill this task that he's giving them, he will come and dwell among them and he will bless them. He will bless them so that then they can turn around and as God told Abraham, and be a blessing to the nations of the earth. But here's... The kicker in all of this for Israel, in order to be a holy nation, they have to know what holiness looks like. In order to represent God, they have to know what it looks like to live in a way that honors him and reflects his character. And that means for Israel that they have to be a deeply ethical and moral people, and they have to live lives that put God's character on display. In other words, to sum it up as Jesus did, they have to love God and love others. And that's what we find in the 10 words in Exodus 20. We looked at those the last three weeks, the 10 commandments, most typically called that, but the 10 words is what we think is a better way to designate them. God spoke those 10 words to Israel directly to the people from the top of Mount Sinai, and they were terrified when they heard them. I want you to look in Exodus 20, in verse 18, at the people's response to God speaking these words to them. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. They stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. And then the dynamic of this all changes. Now look at verse 21. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And so God has given them these words so that they would not sin, so that they would live in holiness and so that they could dwell with Him in His presence And he's given them these 10 words initially as sort of a broad summary of the way they are to live and how they're to go about their relationship with him and with each other. And now he's going to get into more specifics. Now he's going to dive into more detail and give them moral guidance and teach them how to live as a holy people. The rest of the book of the covenant is going to give them further instructions Or we could call this case law. So as you read through this, which we will not read all of it today, I would encourage you to go back and read this later. As you read through this, see if you can notice which of the ten words or commandments each of these cases is expanding on. Maybe it's do not kill. Maybe it's honor your father and mother. Maybe it's don't make idols false images. But each of these is expanding and working out the Ten Commandments and the idea of loving God and of loving others. Now, the book of Exodus actually designates the Ten Commandments one way and then this case law a different way. And I'll show this to you. You can notice this in the text. So we know we're reading this right. Go back to Exodus 20 and verse 1. We talked about this for three weeks, but how are the Ten Commandments designated in the book of Exodus. Verse one, and God spoke all these words saying, and then he goes on. Now I want you to flip over to chapter 21. After he gives the Ten Commandments and the people respond, now he's going to go into a different type of moral instruction. What does verse one say? Now these are the rules. It's a different Hebrew word, and so these are different. They're an expansion. They're an application of the Ten Commandments. Now, I want you to flip over to Exodus 24. Sorry, we're going to be back and forth in these chapters all morning this morning, so I'm sure your fingers are sweaty, so it'll be easier to turn the page. (laughs) Exodus 24, look at verse 3. This is the after the book of the covenant has been given, and God is calling the people to respond. Look what it says in verse three, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, the words and the rules, both are here and both make up this book of the covenant and both of them have a specific role to play in the life of Israel. The covenant is made up of broader, more fundamental words, revelations of God and his character that he gives to them to guide them, to teach them to love himself and love others. And the rules flesh out those instructions and help them to apply them and see specifics. But here's the thing about the rules that we're going to get into today, right? Even these rules, these case law examples, don't function like a law covering every possible circumstance. So these aren't going to cover every detail. And so what has to happen here is Israel has to take these examples and they have to figure out the principles that they teach and then they have to apply them in their lives. Remember back in Exodus 18 where uh, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, helps him to appoint judges? That's exactly the work that those judges would have been doing, applying the case law and helping Israel figure out how to live holy, ethical, and moral lives that represent God properly. And so they have to take these principles and they have to work them out in their daily lives. And these principles that Israel needed to know are what I want to draw your attention to today. We can learn a lot from this. I know Jewish law is not the most exciting part of scripture to read. Everybody loses track in Exodus or Leviticus as they're going through the Bible in a year, right? Because you get into it and you're like, I don't, I don't, I'm not tempted to boil a goat in its mother's milk. That's not, you know. And so everybody loses track, it loses track here. But the specifics here are meant to draw us to the principles. And there's much that we can learn of, about what it means to live holy lives. Now, I don't want to study this example by example and go through all of this together. I want you to go back and read these sections, these chapters on your own. And as you do that, I want you to take these five lessons that I'm going to give you this morning, and I want you to look for them as you read back through these chapters. So I'm equipping you to go back and study these and read them on your own. That's the goal this morning, all right? So, five lessons. Here's what we're going to learn from these chapters, and we'll look at different examples. We'll go through them. Five lessons that guide our application of God's truth to life. These are the big ethical principles that we draw out of this that God wanted Israel to understand and how he wanted them to relate to himself and to others. Five lessons that guide our application of God's truth to life. First one of these is we remember that ethics, how we live, Choices we make, how we spend our lives in, in choosing right or wrong, ethics are rooted in redemption. I cannot remind you enough of how important this is. This is the whole structure of the book of Exodus. This is the way our salvation works now in the new covenant. Ethics, right and wrong, morality, how we live our lives is always, always, always rooted in redemption. Your pursuit of holiness is rooted in God's work on your behalf through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that pattern in Exodus over and over again. God reminds Israel this, that their pursuit of holiness, their status as a holy people set apart for him, a kingdom of priests, happens to them because they have been delivered and he is continuing to work out that redemption and that change in them. Remember Exodus 20 and verse 2. You can look there. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Notice, interestingly enough, how the rules section of the covenant begins. I want you to turn to chapter 21 and verse 2. Of all the situations to start with, God chooses to discuss a person who is in slavery. Look at point 21, 2 through 6. I'm going to read this and then we'll talk about it and why it's first. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God. He shall bring him to the door of the doorpost and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall be his slave forever. Now, let me be clear on this. This word slave here, is a little bit of an unfortunate word to use because this is not slavery like American chattel slavery. It is not race-based, and it is not cruel and forever and unjust. The slavery here is more like a bond servant. It is economic. This person enters into this relationship as a slave or as a bond servant here. He comes into the service of his master because he is in debt. And so this is a way for him to work off that debt. And it's amazing here that God begins these rules by talking about the freedom of this slave. The debt only goes on so much and he is to be freed by his master at the end of six years. There is a limit to this. Slaves could not be kept indefinitely. But you can see here that if the slave loves his master, the bondservant loves his master, he can choose to stay in his service. What does that sound like? It sounds like a transfer of service from Pharaoh, who was a cruel master, to a good and loving master in the Lord. And so God begins this section this way to help Israel remember their enslavement, the cruel enslavement that they had to Egypt, to Pharaoh, to teach them about his goodness as a loving master and their service to him. Ethics, the way they live, is always rooted in redemption. I want you to notice later on in this case law section, chapter 22, verse 21, look here. You shall not wrong a sojourner. A refugee is that word. A sojourner or oppress him. Why? For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Look at chapter 23 and verse 9. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. He uses the word mistreat here to describe the, what Israel should refrain from when dealing with sojourners or refugees, because that's the same word that was used of Egypt's treatment of Israel. Israel mistreated them. They were cruel to them. And so God says, listen, in all of your actions toward others, particularly sojourners or refugees here, you need to remember what God has done for you and then live out of that. You live in response to your redemption in the way you treat other people, particularly the poor and the marginalized, matters. Because it is a reflection and it flows out of your redemption that the Lord has brought to you. Think of it this way, ethically in our lives. It's like the story of the unforgiving servant in the New Testament. I think that Dr. Miller preached about this just a few weeks ago here at WBC. But to remind you of that story, because it is a shocking and amazing story that should reshape the way we live our lives morally. One servant had amassed a debt that was so monumental that it would have taken him several lifetimes to pay that back. And in a shocking, there's no other word to describe it, in a shocking display of grace and of pity, his master sees that mountain of debt that can never be repaid. And at a personal loss, the master simply forgives him of that debt and lets him go free from his financial obligations. And then that servant, who had just been forgiven all of this debt, walks out, finds a man who owes him a much smaller debt, and rather than forgiving as he has been forgiven, rather than doing that, he throws the man in prison. And I think we're supposed to read that story and obviously rejoice in God's grace, but also think at some level, what has to go wrong in a person's heart to simply miss the hypocrisy? of being forgiven and being unable to forgive another. And that's meant to draw us back to the forgiveness and the redemption that we have in Christ, and then to live out of that in the way we treat other people, in the way we exist with other people. And so if you find yourself having a difficult time pursuing holiness in some area, whether it's forgiveness or some other area, remember your redemption go back to your forgiveness of sins, and let that compel you to obedience to God's commands. Second lesson, we value justice. Five lessons that guide our application of God's truth to life. We remember that ethics are always rooted in redemption, and then secondly, we value justice. Now, this is Simply stated here, right, this little phrase, but it's impossible to read this section of case law to Israel. It's impossible to read this and to come away thinking that God doesn't care about justice in Israel's society and in their lives. Over and over again. I would say this is a dominant theme in this section. Over and over again. In these examples, Israel was taught to be fair, to be just, and to be exacting in how they work out justice and make sure it is done. And two different types of justice are touched on here. Procedural justice and restorative justice, retributive justice. What do I mean by that? Procedural justice. Look at 23 verses 1 to 3. This is talking about how accusations of wrong are handled. The justice system, the way judgments are made is procedural justice. Look at chapter 23, verses 1 to 3. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with the wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil. You shall not bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. And so you've got both sides there. You've got many different ways that justice can be perverted. Don't just assume the poor person's right, but don't fall in with the many. Don't accept a false witness. Instead, be intentional about your procedural justice. Give this person a fair and a just shake at it. So procedural justice is one thing that God is passionate about here with Israel. Another one is restorative or retributive justice. Look at chapter 21, verses 22 All right, now, let's talk about this eye-for-eye thing, right? I know you've all heard this before. Jesus talks about it a little bit in the New Testament. This has often been viewed, probably by secular people, maybe by some Christians, as sort of a barbaric, brutal, and primitive way of enacting justice. You poke my eye out, I get to poke your eye out, right? That's the way people view this, quite literally, And here's the thing. There's really no indication that this is meant to be taken literally. You bruise someone, they get the chance to bruise you. You just sort of stand there and wait and they hit you and bruise you just like you bruise them. That's not how this is meant to be taken. That's not the principle that this is teaching. How do I know that? Well, the verses before this and the verses after this don't apply this rule literally. Look at verses 18 and 19. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed, he's clearly injured physically. Then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay financial retribution. He shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. It's not taken literally. The point is there is an exacting measure of justice that is done. Look right after this at verse 26. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. Again, it's not physical harm that is done back. There is freedom. There is an equal measure of justice done and determined and decided upon. The point of this, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, is that justice should be done. It's a way of saying it quite clearly figure out what justice requires here, and apply that in this circumstance. Things should be made right, and they should be made right in proportion or fairness to the injury sustained. And so in many ways, all of these examples are meant, in the book of the covenant, are meant to build Israel up to be a people who are just and who are fair, regardless of social status, regardless of financial ability or means. They are to be fair. They are to treat people equitably and give them what they deserve, what is due to them. And this makes sense, right? Because of what we know about the character of God. God is a God of justice, and we rejoice in that reality. If God was going, or if Israel was going to put God's character on display, then they had to be a people of justice. They had to live equitably and fair with each other, because God is a God of justice and righteousness. Deuteronomy 32, give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the earth. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just And upright is He. And so His people reflect that. Listen to the prophet Micah's unique understanding of what God wants for His people. It's an amazing summary of how they were to live. You know this one. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? What worship should I offer to Him? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves, a year old, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? No, he has told you. This is the point of the law. Oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Quite clear there. And so as God's people who represent him, Israel here, and I think us, the church in the New Testament as well, we must be passionate about treating others with fairness and with justice. It should flow naturally from us because of who our Father is. And part of that justice means what Micah describes here to love kindness with others, and to treat others with human dignity and compassion. And you see this big time in the case law. Remember, these are five lessons that guide our application of God's truth to our lives. These are big principles that we take and now we put to work in our current cultural context where we live today, just as Israel would have had to do with the case law here. And the third one of these is we uphold human dignity with compassion. And so one of the things you notice very quickly as you read through this case law in these chapters is that God requires Israel to treat everyone and particularly the weak and the marginalized with dignity and compassion. We already saw that regarding sojourners or refugees, but we will see that with other groups as well throughout the case law here. Now in the ancient world, every society and culture was... Broken up or stratified based on social levels of importance. If you were born into this social sphere, you had more rights and you were more important than someone who was born in a lesser social sphere, almost like a caste system. And so, how you were treated and the compassion you were afforded was based on where you stood, which rung on the social ladder. Now, we've already seen how God requires Israel to treat sojourners. Treat them with kindness and with dignity because Israel was in the same situation in a foreign land. They know how difficult that is, but I want you to notice as well throughout this, how the poor and the weak were treated and God called them to treat them with compassion as well. I'll show you a couple of examples. Chapter 21, verse 28. I think this is fun. All these different case laws. I had a ball this week reading through this and just thinking about it. So, um, so stick with me a little bit longer. Chapter 21 and verse 28. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. You're like, okay, what's significant about this? What does this have to do with treating everyone with dignity and compassion? Well, in other ancient cultures, there was no penalty or restitution required if an ox gored a woman. Only the men required restitution in the vast majority and maybe all ancient cultures. It just didn't matter. Women were on a lower social standing. And one of the things that's so important about this case law is that God presents men and women here on equal footing. They're equally important and equally valuable to him. And you see that even in this reflection of saying both are to require restitution here. To show this a little further, I'd like to hit on one of the more difficult passages in this. Go to chapter 21, verses 7 through 11. This will be fun. Let me read it to you, and then we'll work through it, and I'll explain what's going on here. Verse 7, When a man sells his daughter as a slave, now keep reading, don't stop there, She shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money." Now, let me explain what's happening here because this is probably a little abrupt for our 21st century cultural eyes as we read this. There is a different word used here for slave than is used even of the male servant earlier and certainly the actual word for slave. The word in Hebrew is amah and it is used elsewhere to talk about a young woman of marriageable age. That's what's being described here. And so the situation involved here is a woman of mari- of before marriageable age, maybe right at marriageable age, who is being presented to a man or his son for marriage. And the payment is a dowry, which was common in that culture that was being paid to the family. Now, sometimes a family would be in need of the money early before she was of marriageable age. And so they would take the money early and she would go and work as a household servant until she could be married to the son or to the master of the house. That could be the situation here. Now you'll notice that the new family is not allowed to sell her as a slave to another people group outside of Israel. That would have been common. And that is forbidden here she can only be redeemed back to her original family. If the man decides in the meantime he's not going to marry her, then she is redeemed back to her original family. She's not a slave in the sense that we often think of slavery. Beyond that, you'll notice here that if the dowry is paid for her to marry the son, then she is not treated like a slave at all, but she is treated like a daughter. Now, if she is a second wife or a concubine, which was common in that culture, and this regulated that, didn't necessarily approve of it, but regulated that practice, she was to be treated with dignity and respect, which is described in verses 10 and 11. And so the point here is that God demanded that people be treated with honor and respect regardless of social status or financial status. Look at chapter 23, verse 6, for one more example of this. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. God's people were to value justice and they were to uphold human dignity and compassion with compassion. That is an underlying moral principle for them as they live. Next, almost there. We pursue right motivations and right actions. Oftentimes, we don't think about the Old Testament law teaching right motivations, but it does everywhere. It emphasizes how important they are. Now, let me hit both sides of this. There's always a danger for Christians in ignoring motivations, right? There's a danger that we're just going to sort of act and not have the right heart motivations. And we know in the New Testament and in the Old Testament as well, we talked about this last time with coveting, that heart motivations matter. And so at times we can act without any affection or love behind it. That is a problem. That is a common problem, but I see among Christians a growing reversal in the opposite direction. Sometimes Christians think because of our emphasis on the heart, that motivation or intention is all that matters. If I just intend the right things, then the action is less important than the intention. I can't tell you how many times I've heard Christians say, and I'm not just talking about children here, well, that wasn't my intention, or I didn't mean to. That's a big one. Intention is part of the equation. There is no doubt about it. An ethical, a right action is made up of both the action and the intention. God values both of those. And you can see that clearly in this passage. Look at chapter 21, verses 12 to 14. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. There is a difference in outcome here when the motivation for the action is good or is not ill toward that person. But there's still restitution that needs to be made when a person inadvertently harms another. Chapter 22 and verse 5, look over there. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, unintentionally, he didn't intend, he wasn't trying to harm his neighbor, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. Here's the point for Israel and for us as well. Holiness requires both right motivations and right actions. I know you didn't mean to. It wasn't your intention. It It's often not mine either. But acknowledge that and then acknowledge that the action was still harmful and hurtful. And repent of the right or the wrong action, even if you had the right motivation and the flip side as well. Both are important, and you pick that up in the Old Testament law. Lastly, number five, five lessons. We remember that ethics, how we live, is are always vertical. It's always vertical. As you read through this passage, you you find lots of examples of human-to-human interaction, getting into the specifics and details of life among the people in the land. And a lot of what we have talked about deals with horizontal relationships. But ethical choices, how you live, how we treat one another, that is always tied to one's view of God and one's relationship with God. It always flows out of that. Right in the middle of these, this list of case laws, look at chapter 22, verse 31. You read this, the first phrase of this, you shall be consecrated to me. I mean, you could place that as a summary over this entire section, set apart for God. That's the whole point of all of this. Israel is to be set apart to God, His holy people, His kingdom of priests. They are to live out of a holy love to God and devotion to Him. And many of these laws do address Israel's relationship to God. When you go back, when you go back and read all of these later on today or this week, chapter 23 deals with the Sabbath, which is obviously talking about their relationship with God and honoring Him. God's compassion is talked about in chapter 22, verses 26 and 27. Look there with me. If, you, if ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body, and what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear why, for I am compassionate. The way you treat this poor man who only has one cloak should be a reflection of God's compassion and his character. The whole section, all of these case laws, begin by addressing how Israel worships God. Go back to chapter 20 and verse 22. It begins here with a discussion about altars and how they are to approach God. Chapter 20, verses 22 to 26. And the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I've talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. And then here's the key part of this. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. That was done in pagan cultures to worship false gods. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness be not exposed on it. It begins this way by talking about how they approach God in the altar that they will build. For one reason, because they were going to build an altar to consecrate this covenant and to finalize it in chapter 24, But it begins this way because the worship of God and their ethical choices go hand in hand. They go together. How they worship God and how they treat the neighbor who is poor or those who are outsiders or those who are marginalized matters. It goes hand in hand. And the goal of all of these case laws, the goal is to make them a holy people so that God can dwell among them and bless them so that they can bless others. Look back at verse 24, right in the middle there. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. What's this talking about? Well, in a couple of weeks, we're going to start getting into the tabernacle and the building of the tabernacle, which takes up a huge chunk of the rest of the book of Exodus. Why so much attention to this Tent that was used for a while in the wilderness. So much attention was given to it because this is the point of all of this book and of the case law and of everything and of this covenant. The point is that God will come and dwell among them and bless them. And they will be able to live in relationship with Him, in close proximity to Him, even though they are a sinful people and He is a holy God. And God's deliverance of Israel precedes their obedience. But obedience always follows after redemption. And that's why this is set up this way. The type of obedience that God calls Israel to does not stand on its own. It is connected to their relationship with God. It's not just a list of arbitrary rules that they have to obey. It's a covenant. It's relational between them and between him. It's necessary for them And the end result of this is glorious. The end result for Israel was supposed to be that God would come and dwell among them, they would experience His presence, and they would rejoice in Him and find true life in Him, that they would truly know Him. Now, they failed in that endeavor, but what does the Lord Jesus say about our ethical lives and the possibility of knowing God and of seeing Him? Well, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8 in the Beatitudes says this, Blessed are the pure in heart. Why? For they shall see God. I mean, that's the end game here. Holiness doesn't, or obedience doesn't earn you the right to see God and to have a relationship with Him, but it is necessary. Holiness is necessary, Hebrews says, without which no one will see the Lord. It is a necessary corollary to redemption. It flows after. It comes from it. And the pure in heart are blessed because the end result of their purity and of their obedience and their pursuit of holiness is they get the joy of seeing God and of knowing Him. And that's what God is teaching Israel here. And so I hope for you and I, that is our greatest ambition and our heart's desire, most passionate desire, to truly know God. And because of that, I will live how He wants me to live because I want to know Him and I want to see Him. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this part of Your Word. It is good. It is profitable for us. It teaches us how to live. It teaches us about Your redemption of us and what the goal of Your redemption is to make us a holy people. This teaches us these principles that guide our ethical lives today, that guide our interaction with one another within the church that even guide how we treat and relate to people outside of the church because they're a reflection of your character. And so I pray that you would guide us in wisdom to love you, to want to know you, and then as as a result of that, to live in a way that honors you and finds delight in your character as a reflection of it. We thank you for all you've done. We thank you for this passage. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.